Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, joined as always by Ann Thompson. And Ann, we certainly have plenty to discuss with the festivals and awards season. Things have been moving along with Toronto and there's New York right around the corner. But before we get into all that, it is sort of nice that the news cycle continues to give us other things to talk about, that there is a world beyond this bubble of the fall festivals. And this past week, we got this fascinating update with Christopher Nolan. So we talked about this a bit earlier, how unhappy he was with the HBO Max situation of all these Warner Brothers films getting day and date releases, which he was spared from with Tenet, obviously. Otherwise, this would have been much uglier in certain ways. But in any case, he's done with Warner Brothers. I made the They're case done with him also is the thing. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, get people it. people forget that that he was the 500 pound gorilla on that lot and that he got his out. way. He could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. He talked them into doing that early release of Tenet before they were ready to do it, before their numbers told them it was time. And there was a report this week that they lost like 50 million bucks on this deal. Yeah. How a much movie that should have made them a lot, yeah. you know? Well, also, so so he pushed a, his weight around. Movie. Yeah. I was just going to say it wasn't his best movie either. It wasn't and directors worth like it. him, yeah. right? Alpha male directors like him, A list directors like him are not used to failing, are not used to having a disappointment, and they want someone to blame. At any rate, he went and shopped around, and everybody came uh, calling, and he ended up picking Universal. Which makes sense. I mean, you, you laid this out, and, and I think in anticipation of this happening, a lot of people who were looking at the tea leaves assumed that this would be the most natural endpoint. I mean, obviously I made that, that very like pie, pie in the sky case that Netflix would actually be a really supportive home for a guy like this. They can, you know, basically do a marketing spend to give him his big IMAX situation for this, you know, uh, Oppenheimer nuclear bomb project, which is the end result is that he needs a theatrical thing, but universal of the, of the kind of old studios, is really the only one right now that seems like it could give him some semblance of what he had before. I think Sony made a big pitch for it because, of course, they came through for Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and did very well with that. But that was actually one of their most successful recent movies. And they couldn't lay claim to the kind of box office track record that Universal had with something like F9, which was the highest grossing studio movie during the this whole last period of time in 2021 and and it's really um a testament it, it, it reveals that universal is is sort of the last big studio standing in a in a way in the sense in the theatrical universe in the sense that warners is so invested in HBO Max and and blew Nolan out the door in effect uh, with without sharing any upfront. He wants to be a he's a control freak. He wants to know what's going on. He wants people to check in with him and 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 he doesn't sort of cede ground to the studio as being in charge, even if they're giving him the money to make his movies. So Universal stepped up. I'm sure they all did, but he he went with the strongest play. Disney is totally invested in streaming. Paramount just lost, you know, G Giannopoulos, Jim Giannopoulos just left the legacy executive there. And, uh, and, you know, MGMUA, which I think Mike DeLuca probably could have, you know, persuaded him to come there, but he, he was on his way to a merger with Amazon, even though they're saying that they're sticking to a theatrical plan, it's still in flux, leaving Universal at the top of the heap. But it raises some really fascinating questions because I think so. Correct me, give me, help me with the details. Also, here. also, Donna Langley wooed him. 
We, right. Yeah. And then time. we should, we and should they talk were fellow Brits. If you we think should, about it. Yeah. No, there's, there are probably a few factors there, but we should also look at, so what, what, are, what is the exact rule that universal has? If you make, what is it a $50 million on your opening weekend, you get a longer theatrical. Yeah. But it's a difference runway. between three weekends and five weekends. So, so one way so or that another, is out the door in this case, yeah. I wasn't sure that universal was willing to step up to a hundred days, but according to trade reports, that was the deal that he had to give them a hundred days. Um, and when are exclusive. we seeing this movie? What kind of a world is it going to be <laughs> 20, coming out? 20, so it starts shooting in 2022. That's the other question. What right? kind of a world is will it come who, out? To? I, I know. Where will we be two years from now? A real open. You know? It's a real open. I mean, hopefully we'll be somewhere where there is still a reason for this to be worthwhile. I wonder and what the deal movie. language was. That's what I really I'd love to see how they wrote it out because they had to give themselves some kind of exit clause. Like if he opened at 45. Yeah. Does the 100 days go out the window? Yeah. That's I mean, my that question. Was- he would not be happy about that. Losing 50% this isn't necessarily a commercial movie. Or how no. many theaters are going to be around in 2024? Well, that's right? what I would say. I was thinking it's like, at least with Netflix, you have a situation where they look at theatrical events as like a marketing spend. They're, it's that's not right. part of their core business model. It's part of their branding. They can do some wild IMAX stuff and, and let the movie have that life. It's just that for him, it's probably become anathema because it's not their business. Because it's almost like a religion for him, which I respect. But I also find part of, you know, limiting. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's how he got into trouble with Tenet. It was like he set himself up as the as the savior of theatrical, which was such hubris, really. You know? Yeah, I mean, who actually? I, is I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker. Don't get me wrong. I I think he's brilliant. Yeah. But um, I think, uh, but here's the thing. Sometimes he flexed his <laughs> muscles, right? He flexed his muscles, and the the studios came calling. He got what he yeah, wanted. Hundred percent, and and I think this raises the other thing we should we should look at, which is so official reports about this are that like Tarantino, the executives had to go to his house, read the script, and then do the pitch, which is almost it's like an acting exercise or something. I would love to see this or like an, a, a business school kind of experiment. You know, like you have. X number of hours to, to basically look at this thing, understand what it is, decide that it's good, good enough business for you, and then like make a compelling case to invest in it for like two plus years. So I mean, the, 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 the deal itself was the model of what he had at Warner's. That's, that's, that part of it was just meet my, my Warner's deal is what he demanded. The full, you know, full control, 100% final cut, you know, uh, the, the, the marketing spend, the budget he wanted. It was all 100, 100, 100, according to the reports, right? You know, 100 million right. budget, 100 million marketing spend, 100 million, uh, 100 days in the, uh, in the theaters. But but the part that was that was not calculable would be his trust in the person behind the desk there to, the, to come through for him. And in that case, that person was Donna Langley. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, I mean, when when you read this script, I mean, you know, he did really well with Dunkirk. It was sort of it was nice to see him find a different kind of register for his style to do, you know, what felt like a more classical war movie, but still had his own sort of imprint he on it. He played around with time and, now he's and going all that back. stuff. Yeah. So we're curious to see what As it is usual. about this particular movie, which is another, you know, wartime period piece that makes it a hundred million dollar movie. I mean, presumably 
we're going to see a mushroom cloud would be my guess. Yeah, exactly. So, but it, but it's a fascinating sort of question. And the other part of it, I think is really worth looking at is just how rare this is. I mean, is there any other living filmmaker anywhere who could possibly get studios to say, sure, whatever you want, a hundred million bucks here, a hundred million bucks there. This is one movie. This is one movie. So it's not like it's a long-term thing. Um, One, one person is Steven Spielberg. Maybe. Would would that still be the case? I think Ridley Scott. Uh, Maybe. I mean, these are the A-listers. These are the top of the line. You know, they, I mean, there's certainly Peter I mean, Jackson with the right project, although he hasn't. Well, done well it's one been a couple a of years. Yeah. I yeah. Know. I mean, I, I look Cameron, at people, Jim Cameron. Look at the paycheck that's been. Jim, look Jim at the Cameron wallet been, that's been opened for yeah. Jim Cameron. But Jim Cameron. Over also how many open. years has it been since Avatar hasn't well, happened? But I was going to say with Jim Cameron, he doesn't need anyone. He can just open his own wallet also. Nobody I mean, does that, though. Yeah. So it's just I mean, there are certain filmmakers who I think, you know, you have like the the PTAs out there who like maybe they can get any actor they want or you have they have Tarantino. to keep it down to a certain level. Now, Carantino got the budget. Remember, he did. So, yeah, he did on that. So case. he's he's but it he's was a, also because he was leaving a long time deal. The same situation as Nolan. So very and unique he shopped it around. It was a bidding war. And and he had but he held on to uh, some copyright there. So that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. But I think it's it's I mean, there, there is he wants to own all his movies. There is another aspect here, which is, you know, we are ultimately only talking about white men here and within the larger context of uh, trying to diversify the system. I'd be curious to see, you know, is there even a pathway for a non-white male director to get to the point where you have, you know, studios saying, yes, please, we want we want you and, and we'll give you everything you want in order to do this or are those deals just not really going to happen anywhere? Because in general, they're just not good business to have. I mean, mega deals in general well, seem to be. You could argue that the kind of filmmaker Nolan and Spielberg and Scott represent are on the way out because what you really have now is a, almost a replicant, a, a replica of the <laughs> not uh, Blade Runner. No, yeah, I know uh, it's a replica, <laughs> a replica of the of the old. Um, studio system with Marvel, right? Where it's yeah. all in-house and they have their own people to, who do everything and then they hire the directors to come in and work inside their universe. By the way, Villeneuve, speaking of Dune and oh, Blade Runner, yeah. uh, put his Scaled. mouth in it today. Yeah. I want I want to send out a directive to all directors. <laughs> Don't diss Marvel. <laughs> it's not going to come back well for you. Um, it's so interesting. I think Denis Villeneuve trope. is a man of taste and distinction and a great, great filmmaker and I love Dune. But... Um, whoa that's not that's not what you he and scorsese he should have learned well, you should reiterate so what did villeneuve say Let's he basically parse. said that the marvel movies are cookie cutter formulas you know copies of each other which i totally disagree with it isn't well, true if you've seen them all which i highly doubt he has probably hasn't i mean it's more about the concept i mean scorsese hadn't either but i also think you know, I was watching Shang-Chi last week and I enjoyed a lot of it. But I also think that there is this question of, you know, there there are broader existential questions about cinema versus product that people who are really, you know, artist first types 
and don't want to play the industry game wrestle with. And when you get asked about these things, you can't always necessarily say I, exactly. I recognize right. what you're saying. So, I, and, I, and I guess I would say to someone like Scorsese or Villeneuve, consider the language you're using and yes. how you use your words. Because of course, what you're saying is true. I decry it as much as anyone else. The studios are responsible for not giving room to all the other movies that are out there, all the different ranges and, and, right. and, and the diversity you're talking about. And by the way, Antoine Fuqua might be one of the most commercial African-American directors out there. Yeah. Who else is yeah. there? It's, it's a fascinating Spike question. Lee doesn't necessarily generate no. income. He's, no. he's more of a specialty I mean, guy. We've got, he would say you know, he's a studio man, and he is, but I would say well, that the budgets are at a certain... He would say he hasn't gotten the budgets he wanted all the yeah. time for the movies he wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, hopefully Barry Jenkins is on his way with, this, with his Disney project, but um, I mean, Fu Fuqua is... is, is, is oh, is, Ryan yeah, Coogler. Ryan Coogler. And, and Coogler has, has figured out a way. I mean, it's been... It's been, we'll see. I mean, obviously, Black Panther's coming, but you know, he's sort of that's on the Marvel, rise. but that's yeah. Marvel. So, yeah. outside of Marvel, next, would, uh, would they give Fuqua. him that budget? Would you say? Yeah, I know it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, Kugler, he's a, he's a very active producer, and he produced Space Jam 2, which wasn't <laughs> necessarily he the, did, the he most did really, really well with the Creed movie. That, yes, that was exactly. a very commercial, yeah. very down the, the middle kind of, yeah, uh, would love and to edgy, see is, is Kugler, a good movie. It could Coogler sort of wrestle his way into a deal the way that that say Christopher Nolan could. That's a, that's. There are a lot of directors who have promised too, who who given the right resources could move forward, like Ronaldo Marcus Green, the guy who did King Richard. Yes. The world is his oyster right now. Yes, exactly, and th and that's a that's a really good point because you also have Will Smith, who has a production company, which is which, which is the you know the entity that hired him. So in some ways, you also see like sort of a separate pipeline for more diverse talent so that's that business side of the industry is going to keep evolving in really interesting ways well i wanted to talk about another filmmaker who has a very unique deal with warner brothers and is still there because he has a movie clint. this week clint At age 91 <laughs> clint eastwood is without question i haven't done my research i just know it to be i don't true. think we can argue with this the only guy at this age to ever be directing studio movies and also acting in them and even just directing them, I don't think it's ever happened. I mean, it's just the, the weirdest thing. I loved seeing Manuel Oliveira make three movies past the age of 100 that were also really challenging and fascinating. Art films. Art films. We, and some of the new wave folks made it into their 90s. Godard passed 90 this past year. But uh, I mean, I watched Cry Macho. Um, it's not bad. It's, I liked it's it. I really parts, liked it. It's but, like putting uh, on an old comfortable sweater because you know him so well. I happen to love Clint Eastwood. I do. I don't have to agree with his politics, etc. But I love the guy. I've loved him for decades. I've interviewed him many times. And he's an unusual anomaly. You know, he's a movie star. He's a producer. He's a director. He's in control of his fate. He has a relationship with the studio that is handshake where he just tends to work at Warner Brothers. He has a whole crew of people who work with him on all the different films. He knows what he's doing. He knows what stories are going to work for him. He held on to this one for, what, 30 years or something. Mm -hmm. And finally, because he didn't think he was old he enough, he finally it. did it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I find fascinating about these late period Eastwood films is that when he acts in them, tonally they're very different because he's so cognizant of his screen presence, but also just, he plays certain types and he's in his older age become constantly the 
person who plays the sort of aging masculine archetype in you know a world that you maybe carry his, you carry the old archetype with you in your head that's why it works yeah. so if he tips his hat a certain way yeah, or you there. look into his eyes a certain way or he makes a certain smirk you remember it from another it's very movie. meta yeah it's very yeah. meta it's almost like a Charlie Kaufman-esque type of a gamble. And like he does it, but it's not explicit either. It's not like he's just thinking about it in those terms. So it's 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 very weird. And the it's other almost thing like I, he has the language down to some kind of haiku. You know, it's yeah. very simple, really. Go ahead. He's fun to watch. No, I was just going to say, I mean, and I, I found this on the mule as well was like there's something about how good he is that really doesn't help everybody else in the frame with him. Like, so in this movie, he's this sort of faded cowboy who's asked by his former employer to go rescue the guy's son to bring him back from Mexico. So he's a man on a mission. So he's a man on a mission, and which is which is a, a fascinating sort of old trope, old guy, Western right? trope. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen a version of this movie before, and then it becomes kind of like a buddy movie where he's bringing the kid who he calls kid all the time in, in old school movie parlance. Uh, and then they sort of bond. He brings him back across the border. And while the kid has this, the you know, the 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 cock. <laughs> yeah, let's be clear, a rooster actually named Macho, which is, which is very entertaining. I just felt like that the actor who played that kid, the actor who played his mother, the actress who plays um, the kind of potential love interest they meet along the way, uh, they're okay, but I, they didn't stand out to me. And I wonder if it's maybe it's just because. He, they, the, the, there's some part of the process where they don't try that hard in the casting because they have Clint or maybe it's because he moves so fast that he doesn't you know he's obviously not like Kubrickian he doesn't do a bunch of takes and God no right. you're it's lucky sort of, if you get one or two out of yeah. him and you can feel, I feel he's that. famous for that that's been true for a long time he doesn't labor over any of it and and he, you gotta get it right away um, and but I would sometimes say they don't very and few people stand on. up to him yeah. in most of his films yeah I mean who's going to who's gonna say Clint maybe we should do another take because he sounded he, really he off. was legendarily he, he fought with Kevin Costner on Perfect World Kevin wasn't liking it at all Merrill went for it there was always a rumor that he and Merrill had a had an affair on on the set no, it's of, a rumor uh, between the stars of, of Bridges of Madison County, which yeah. is my favorite. Here's another thing about Clint: he's willing to wear his heart on his sleeve. He's willing to be emotional and sensitive as a lover, as a man in 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 movies, which is is not necessarily de rigueur these days. Yeah, I mean, there is a, certainly a corniness at play in Cry Macho that you kind of have to just roll with. But it's but it's also, you know, I read the ending very literal in a very literal way and i won't spoil it but i did feel like there's a way to look at it almost as dreamlike in the sense that you know this is a guy who would who has been riding off into the sunset for like 20 30 years something like that since unforgiven and every time it's like a little bit more pronounced and this time it felt like really like a specific sort of you know this is my ideal it's just to like fade into the happiness of being this character i've played year after year after year and i think that's what makes cry macho actually a really appealing movie to several generations of people it's just to see clint being in that state to continue he's, to be that he's, person he's being a parent he's being a father and he's being uh, a partner and a lover and he's he's sort of telling us this is more important than being macho 
Right. That if I can leave you with one thing, it's don't don't be it's the way. Don't buy into that old was. that old stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's, but it, that's it, very but he was he was telling us that back with Unforgiven too. Yeah, because he was already kind he of was already deconstructing the, the the masculinity that he embodied. But here's what I'm wondering. So obviously, there's a fundamental appeal to Clint that crosses generations. My father will want to watch this movie, and I know he told Kenny Turan in the L.A. Times, you know, I, how the hell is all that going to work out with the day and date release that Warner Brothers? Is so doing are the older stuff? audience but, is going to show up for him? I bet a lot of the males know. do. I bet a lot of those guys, the, the the sort of between the coast guys who love him, do show up. Are you but saying a in lot of people, or? yeah. But it, but I think most people are going to watch it I on HB, yeah. uh, HBO Max. Well, I actually think the Clint brand translates very nicely into a streaming I agree. context. This is also not a super problem. visual thing anyway. Yeah, could, I mean, it, it'll it's look it's fine pretty. on a home TV. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty, but it's not it's not. Yeah, it's not a not necessarily a large canvas movie. I mean, it almost makes me wonder, like, could Clint in his heading into his mid 90s just continue to make movies in today's climate because his iconography and his sensibility both actually translate very well to the climate for home viewing right now. I mean, Cry Macho would be, I think, a harder movie to get a lot of audiences to go see. And two or three years ago, we'd be like, well, whatever. It's just, you know, those movies aren't super expensive for a studio to produce. They can take a loss because they still have Clint. Now it's almost like he fits pretty nicely into the HBO Max paradigm. So, well, let's see how many more movies he has in him. I, know, I mean, this could I be know. his last one. There's, it, it, it would be fine if if it was. Yeah, he did. He looks a little frail, but he also he does. Was, I worry about him yeah. falling over. <laughs> and I mean, he gets on a horse and he throws yeah. a, a weird punch. I grant He's you. Doing uh, stuff. I mean, look, yeah. making a movie is hard business. <laughs> like you have to be on a set coordinating with other people even if he moves fast he was still doing something fairly difficult in multiple ways there which is just fascinating to see from from so many on so many levels but anyway let's let's talk about toronto so because because in spite of all these other things going on the film festival scene has continued and you know we dug deep on telluride we had a great time there and we're sorry that we can't be on the ground in toronto this year but we've been doing our best to compensate by watching films and tracking the buzz i've been watching every day what so so what is your sense of of what's actually resonating first off let's look at the bigger films because there are some bigger films that definitely have sort of benefited from the additional bump of uh, of Tiff Buzz. Well, there's Edgar Wright's one night last night in Soho, which I loved. <laughs> I just loved this movie. It's a genre mash, '60s style, incredible performances by Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor Joy, um, and not to uh, underestimate the late great Eleanor. Um, I want to say <laughs> Diana Rigg. Diana. I was going to say Eleanor Rigby. Do you believe it? Diana Rigg uh, is fantastic, um, and and. Edgar Wright just uses his, you know, characteristic uh, flair to to full effect. It's kind of a scary movie. Is it a horror movie, Eric? Well, I'm I have as we are recording, I haven't seen it yet. So I'll I'll report back next week on that one. But I always have appreciated that Wright's films defy those kinds of boundaries, and that's usually the best way to go. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward. The the reactions to it have, have really been intriguing to me from Venice and now Toronto. 
So it seems like Focus has a nice uh, potential commercial play in terms of just the level of anticipation that's been coming out. I'm, I'm also curious to see how Eyes of Tammy Faye ends up going over. I mean, I'm confident that Jessica Chastain delivers a a uh, Best Actress performance in the title role, and Andrew Garfield is great, but I suspect that um, Tick, Tick, Boom will be his big Oscar play. So uh, this is a Searchlight movie. They're, they're pulling out all the stops. It's an entertaining movie, first and foremost. Because about of these her. two televangelists, it's almost a comedic performance. It's 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 a it's a oh, fascinating it's range of of things that she's doing there. I thought uh, she's playing this, you know, American evangelist who, uh, you know, is just such an eccentric character. There was a documentary made about her a little over twenty years ago, and to me, it was like it's not quite satire, but it's sort of like a wink, wink at the audience, like, I'm not really making fun of her, but it's okay to kind of laugh at who she is because of just, you know, it's such a transformation for Chastain. She's a, by far the only thing I think that really works about that movie. Garfield, well, I think because you problem, care about her. Yeah, He's Garfield's the villain, in effect. The villain, but also they age him up in a way that didn't really work for me. It seemed kind of hokey. There was just it's, it's just a little all over the place. I actually think Michael Showalter did a good job. I think this is a, t- a, tr- a based on that documentary. This is a very very difficult uh, movie to pull off, and I thought they did a good job. Well, it's I I mean I I guess what what I got out of it is that it is a. a engaging narrative way to kind of explain how evangelical Christianity managed to be so powerful in this country. You see how that the the realization that getting into people's TV sets rather than just calling TV the Antichrist was it was a brilliant maneuver in a way. And there are some creepy things about that and so forth. I don't know if it fully clarifies all of that to the extent that I would have liked. And I wasn't super invested in the emotional trajectory of the, the these two characters. Um, throughout a very long movie, but again, it's it Chastain all the way. I mean, I guess Absolutely. the question is, does does a movie like this? I mean, now we know what it is. Tiff decided to give her this acting award. Does it does this become the kind of movie where even if not everybody is a hundred percent on board with the film as a whole, the performance is just so strong it just carries her all the well, way bi- to the award show. Absolutely, biopics tend to do well. I mean, Renee Zellweger would be one example. Um, in June, that movie and, was worse, by the way. Th- that much Sorry. worse. So, <laughs> so, so, yeah, exactly. I, I'm using that as an example of you know it doesn't. I would say that you know whatever you think of respect. Um, um, Jennifer Hudson's got a, a shot here too. You know, it, it'll probably happen. Um, of course, uh, Toronto continued to to promote other things, uh, including Dear Evan Hansen, which um, got um, a lot of negative reviews. That was it is sitting it. at forty two on Metacritic, which is not a very good place to be uh, for an Oscar contender. Although I would say if there's any group that appreciates the craft that was required to pull off this high wire act of turning a stage musical like this into a movie, it is the Academy. And it played okay at the DGA where I saw it with some applause. I would say um, this is probably not a contender. The movie that I think actually really benefited from tiff buzz and um, the next few days should be should tell that story more i would expect is belfast which if i had to put my money down and say there's an obvious contender for the people's choice award it would be that one i've heard king richard i would say yeah but 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 belfast seems to be the one that has really been a, a 
the the big crowd pleaser out of TIFF, as far as I can tell. I mean, oh, by the way, Eric, out of uh, Telluride, there was a poll that this guy Michael Patterson does every year with yes. a bunch of critics, and oh uh, I was shocked that your favorite movie was the top ranked uh, choice above Power more. of the Dog. Tell Marcel. me more, Marcel. Marcel. Well, Marcel the Shell was a unique Telluride experience, right? When you think about it, Power of the Dog was a movie that started at Venice. Marcel the Shell was a surprise movie. And by the way, still does not have distribution, though. I, I've heard that there have been some pitches going on, and I'm sure they're, they're taking their time with that one. It's nice that we're having that. I mean, I'll say with TIFF, uh, I've tried to explore the program the same way that I would have any other year and find films that go beyond kind of the obvious that aren't necessarily any discoveries. Yeah. I've had some discoveries. There was a film that I really, really enjoyed and had absolutely no visibility except that it was available for me to watch on the, the digital platform. And that was called Doog Doog spelled. It looks like Doug Doug in English. Um, it's a first time filmmaker from India named uh, retweak Parikh. And it's, it's basically about, uh, this motorcycle accident happens and the place where the motorcycle crashes, everyone thinks that the motorcycle has like special powers and they start building shrines around it. And then it becomes a temple and then it becomes a religion. And it becomes this fascinating metaphor for these kinds of, you know, like remote temples that you see in, in places like India and how sort of, you know, the origin story of something can lead to myth it's, so it's a great sort of satire. I thought a better satire of religion than Tammy Faye, but also it was like very entertaining, very, very strange. Kind of reminded me of um, Quentin Dupuis films, the guy who made Rubber and Steak and all that. Um, and also just like a great first time filmmaker discovery kind of a thing. So I'm always looking for those kinds of things. Um, Lucille ha has Helalovich's film, uh, Earwigs, a very cool sort of like, Boonwell-esque twist on, on Hammer Horror that I really enjoyed as well. So there's stuff. There's stuff happening on the TIFF front. I really enjoyed uh, I'm Your Man, which is Maria Schrader's uh, German Oscar entry. Um, and oddly enough, it stars Dan Stevens as a humanoid rob ro robot who's who's programmed to to be a lover to be a companion to be a partner and the woman the, the academic who's uh, assigned to evaluate him and live with him for three weeks is is, is resistant initially of course <laughs> and it goes it goes where it goes it's really uh he has to speak fluent german with a british accent <laughs> yeah i actually i saw this film at out of the virtual berlin earlier this year because it was in competition there and I appreciated it. I thought it, it had it had some clunkier moments, especially in the midsection. But I liked where it ended. It's yeah. we've seen stories about sort of the human robot love situation. It's like her uh, a yeah. bit. Yeah, it, it does. It's it's more wistful than 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 you might expect at first, I suppose. But uh, well, okay. we're not ideal uh, partners, we humans. <laughs> That's an understatement. So, uh, but I saw what else did I see? I I saw the. Um, um, I caught up with the um, Terrence Davies movie, which um, what's it called? Benediction, mm -hmm. and um, that was that was a little strange, a little odd, a little uh, brilliant. You know the way he always is. You know one gay love movie. story. Yeah, it's. I mean, I would love to see that Set one in on uh, World War Two aftermath. The one that, that seems like it's really continuing to gather momentum outside of um, 
uh, Belfast is uh, the rescue, which everybody I've spoken to is just like over the moon about. I mean, I'm I'm impressed by how, just how well this movie is. It plays well. It play. Well, you know why? Because it's about competence. It's about people who mean well, who who get together and pull together, and they're ingenious and they figure out solutions and and they win. And and so how you know here we are fighting against COVID and and not necessarily winning that battle the way we would like. Uh, all the different reasons that our world is full of incompetence um, and people who don't do the right thing. And when you get it, you welcome it and you embrace it. I think Fauci is similar in a way. You, you embrace his, his do-gooderness um, in that in But Fauci that didn't go into a, into a cave. No, he didn't go into a cave, visibility. but he's also heroic. And then have to anesthetize a bunch of kids. I mean, the story behind this thing, and it's going to be fun to to watch watch people continue to talk about it. I mean, they're lucky that they were the first out of the gate with this one because we know there are some other stories coming, like the Ron Howard adaptation in a Netflix series. So uh, by the time those come around, this will sort of set the foundation. It seems to have set the right tone. So good news for for that one in, in the uh, the weeks ahead. And you know, we know there's some other Nat Geo stuff on the horizon, like. Matt Heineman's new documentary about COVID, which is going to open first the wave. Yeah. Opening the Hamptons Film Festival. So that company is going to have a, a good season, it seems like. So uh, next week, where are we going to be at? I think you're coming to town. New York. New you're coming York. to my hood. I'm going to be uh, flying, actually, on the day that we usually do the podcast. So we might have, we'll to, have to figure out rejigger that. Then. But I'll be yeah. in your hood, and um, and I'm looking forward to opening night, the yeah. tragedy of Macbeth at uh, the the Joel Cohen Unreal. solo outing with uh, wife Frances McDormand and Denzel playing the ultimate power couple. You you couldn't ask for a more upbeat way to bring back New York's greatest film festival at Altelli Hall than Macbeth, a true <laughs> a true life affirming story. The Scottish play. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't wait to see the movie. I think it's going to be awesome. Obviously, Joel and and Francis are a real New York power couple, so that'll be a nice pairing to have in person. And I can't wait to. Uh, to boogie with you at Tavern on the Green. It'll be fun to be, it, to be I around, love it. So. it. Of all the years I grew up in New York, I always looked forward to film prom. Fall, crisp air, New York Film Festival. It was like the high point of my year. I'll see you soon. Ed. Glad to be back. Travels. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.